Thank you, Luke and Tiffany and your band of renown for leading us this morning. I hope as we're singing those great choruses and that, that great old hymn, that those words are things that you're not, not just reading on the wall and, and going along with, but there are some powerful truths in there. You will be with us through the fire, through the storm, through the fiercest battle. Uh, you know, when we talk about our Christianity, we're not talking about rainbows and unicorns. We're talking about the reality of the challenges of life. We live in a broken world, but God is with us every step. And this morning, wherever you're coming from, maybe you're right now in a great place in life and it's moving along, which is a little hard to believe in that it's still 2020. <laughs> maybe you're coming out of a situation where uh, you've been wounded deeply or a situation where you messed up. We started last weekend and continue for a couple weeks here talking about comebacks and the fact of the matter is that the God of the Bible is a God of comebacks. And no matter how badly you may have messed up and no matter how deep the wound is in your own life, the God of the Bible delights in walking with us through the fire and the storm and the battle. He's a God of comebacks and, and we're not talking plastic coated Christianity. We're talking just the reality of the power of God in this day and age. So thanks for being here this morning. My privilege to be here. My goodness, I started looking at that insert. I didn't know they were gonna do that. They pulled it off my webpage and you've got all the information and way more than you ever wanted on that page. If you turn it over on the back, there's my blood type, my bank numbers, and my social security. No, I'm just kidding, but anyway. It is a privilege to be here with you as we walk through these weeks together. And um, Luke, I thank you for that powerful prayer, buddy. Wow. God walks with us. So, you're standing in line at In-N-Out, and it's a long line, and you've only got so long for lunch. And gradually, you know, one person is served, you move up, and then another person is served, and you move up, and then the person right in front of you waits until he gets to the counter, and then he looks at that rather simple menu at In-N-Out. I mean, you're either gonna get a double or a single with cheese or without cheese. Isn't that about it? And the guy in front of you stands there and looks at the menu. Let's see. So I can get a single or I can get a double? Yes, sir. Hmm. With cheese? Yes, sir. Do fries come with that? Yeah, and you know, you're, you're going crazy back there. Make a decision. <laughs> Researchers tell us that on average, on average, we make about 2,000 decisions every waking hour. Now, that's not possible. Well, that's average. The guy in the in and out line, he probably brings the average down a little lower. <laughs> But we, we just make decisions all the time from the time we wake up. What are we going to wear? Do I, do I comb my hair on the right or on the left? You know, do I want to eat this or eat that? What do you, just on and on. I'm looking over here. Some of you have already decided whether you're even going to listen to me this morning. <laughs> we make decisions all the time. And those decisions, some tiny and <laughs> insignificant, others more significant, those decisions have a way of either moving us a little bit closer in our walk with Jesus or a little bit further away in our walk with Jesus. 
they have consequences, they have implications. And I want to talk a little bit about decisions because when we are under stress, when we are in a desperate situation that says in your notes, well, it's easy for poor decisions to be made. In fact, again, researchers tell us that when, when the circumstances are desperate, when we're in danger, when we're afraid, on average, I don't know how you measure this, 80% of our common sense goes out the window. <laughs> you know, Patrick McManus wrote a great book years ago. He called it full-bore lineal panic, you know, when things go wrong. Years ago, I'd only been married to Selma for a few months. We were invited to go fishing in Alaska, which was quite an invitation. I'd never done that before, never been to Alaska. But we went up there one July, and we fished a number of different rivers. And on one day, we fished for salmon in a river that was known to be the fourth, it is the fourth fastest current river in North America. I mean, that baby cooks, and it's, it's basically glacier water. And there's salmon in there, and we were in a raft, with a guide. Our group was actually two rafts, and in our raft was my wife Selma, myself, one other man that came with us, and the guide, four human beings. Same thing in the other raft, there were four human beings, but the other raft we were with had the professional guide. <laughs> our raft, for whatever reason, had the, uh, the trainee guide. He just followed the professional, and we were on one of the fastest-moving, dangerous rivers in North America fishing for salmon. We'd pull over, we'd get out in the current, and we're in central Alaska in the middle, and when I say in the middle of nowhere, if you've been to Alaska in the inner part of that state, it's beautiful, but there's not much out there. And we had fished most, yeah, there's bears out there, that's right, moose, if you, but anyway, not much uh, what we would call civilization. So here we are booking down the river, and we're done fishing, and, and they had left a car force on the one road in that entire part of the state. It's a two-lane road, and it went over that river, and there were two concrete stanchions both in the river that held the bridge up that went over, and our car was parked here. So we're behind the professional guide. He's pulling over. We're watching him do it. It's a little tricky because that river's moving so fast, and we're a ways back watching him move and negotiate the river, and I'm thinking our guide's gonna do the same thing. And uh, we're just moving toward that bridge, and I, maybe it was my imagination. I thought we were going right toward one of those concrete stanchions, and I kind of thought, he, he, he's gonna decide right or left sooner or later here. <laughs> and we kept going, and we kept going, I'm going, whoa, and now the other raft is up on the shore there, they're watching us, we are just I'm thinking, and suddenly I hear from behind me the only guy with the oars say, uh oh. <laughs> one of the oar locks had broken and he was kind of leaning to one side, holding one oar in the air and trying to, and so the raft turned sideways. Here comes the stanchion. Boom! We literally folded our inflatable raft around that stanchion. All four humans in the water of this fast-moving, cold glacier water river wearing chest-length waders, which if you know anything about those, once you go underwater, you're underwater for a while. You talk about desperate moments. I, I popped up, I went around the left side of the big concrete stanchion, my wife and the guide, and eventually the raft, once it flipped upside down, went around the right side, and I started drifting away, but I heard my wife Selma in a panic situation look at the guide and say, what do you want me to do? I love that woman. 
And actually what she did is pretty heroic. The guide, I said the trainee guide, was the only guy in our boat without a life jacket on. So he said to Selma, well, first of all, where's the other guy? We, the fourth person in our raft we couldn't find. When, we, when they got him out from under, now I'm watching my wife go down the river into the middle of the No, you know, into the wilderness. When they got him out, and now I'm telling it from Selma's point, the, the, the guide said, I don't have a, I don't have a, the raft with one hand and hold on to him at arm's length in the other hand because if he gets a hold of me, he's going to take me down. So here's my bride just calmly holding this guy who's just absolutely hysterical. Decisions in desperate times, we either go one way or the other. We think common sense or we don't think common sense. Poor decisions seem the norm when desperation sets in, but better decisions are usually forthcoming when actually common sense and a little calmness settles in. You've heard it before. You never want to make major life decisions in the middle of crisis. You never want to get, because we're not particularly on balance when everything's, wah! We need to get our perspective before we just fly off the handle and make a decision that'll have consequences maybe for the rest of our lives. So, I want to take you to the Old Testament today and look at a comeback that actually happened very quickly. Next weekend, I want to look at a comeback that took a long time and God and the things we learn in the midst of the comeback. But th this, this weekend, we're looking at a very quick turnaround comeback, and it's in two places in the Old Testament. Now, in your bulletin, it actually says Isaiah 36 and 37, but almost verbatim, the exact passage is found in 2 Kings 18 and 19, and those are the verses I'm going to be reading out of. So I'm sorry for the confusion, and it's interesting. The prophet Isaiah, who lived through this comeback, wrote it in his writings, chapters 36 and 37, but also the author of 2 Kings, as he talked about the different kings of Judah. Now just for a minute, stick with me, stick with me. Don't, tune, don't make the decision to leave, just hang in here. Here's a little bit of history in the Old Testament. You understand, the first king of Israel was Saul, that didn't work out real well or go very long, and then David, a great king, and man, Talk about comebacks in his life. The man was a murderer and adulterer, and God still used him. After David, Solomon, and he took Israel to its zenith, as it were, in wealth and power. But then things went south, partly because of the family dynamic, and you've got a split in the kingdom of Israel. You've got Israel, ten tribes. You've got Judah over here. Now, the entire history of Israel is not good. 19 kings, every one of them did what was not pleasing in the eyes of the Lord. And eventually, 722 years before the birth of Christ, the Assyrians came and hauled them off into captivity. On the other side, on the Judah side, 20 kings, eight of which did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. 12 of them bad. So Judah was kind of good, bad, good, bad, good, bad, good, bad. And Israel was just bad the whole time until God hauled them off via 
the Assyrians. Who are the Assyrians? In a phrase, they were the nastiest people on the face of the earth. If you read the history books, uh, it's stuff that is really inappropriate for a Sunday morning worship time together with families. These people were not only feared, they were vile and vicious. And they didn't just captivate their, the, the surrounding cities. They destroyed them. They, they did things, again, I, you know, I kind of want to describe it because it will give you the impact of how awful these people were. But it's just, it's just you know, later on you're going to want to go to lunch. And if I went into detail, you wouldn't want to go to lunch. I mean, they, they did things that are just unspeakable. This is why, by the way, the prophet Jonah, when God said, go to Nineveh, the capital of Assyria, Jonah said, ain't no way, I'm not going there, no. And he went, we think, oh, bad prophet. No, you've got to understand the culture. The Assyrians were awful. So Jonah went the other way. So anyway, here we are. The Assyrians are the world power, bigger than everybody and nastier than anybody. So who is Hezekiah? Okay, 20 kings in Judah. Now several kings in, you've got Joash, 40 years, good king. Amaziah, 29 years, good king. Uzziah, 52 years, good king. Jotham, 16 more years, good king. Judah has had four good kings in a row, 137 years of kings that did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Things were pretty good in Judah. And then you got Ahaz, 16 years, nasty king, married poorly, and, and Judah began to decline. But his son was named Hezekiah. And Hezekiah kind of pulled things back, turned it around, and for 29 years, Hezekiah was a good king in Judah. And the story, the narrative we're going to read this morning is during the time of King Hezekiah. Who, now, when I say good king, they weren't perfect. But they basically did what was right in the eyes of the Lord as compared to just completely going pagan and serving the gods of the surrounding, the surrounding country. So here's Hezekiah, good guy, 25 years old, he becomes king. In 2 Kings chapter 18, verse 2, there it is. He was 25 years when he be, old when he became king, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem, you got his mother's name, and it says in verse 3, he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord according to all that his father David had done. Imagine being 25 years old and boom, you're a king. Now, now understand, we think of this vast kingdom. In that day and age, a king usually was the king of a city and the surrounding areas, and often the cities were walled as protection. And that was the case with Jerusalem as well. At 25, he becomes king. Now, at 29, just to see the flow of history, he's been king just four years. At 29, uh, Assyria comes down and lays siege to their neighbor, Samaria. And it says there in, in verse 9 of chapter 18, Now it came to pass in the fourth year of King Hezekiah, which was the seventh year of blah, blah, that the Shalomaser, king of Assyria, came up against Samaria and besieged it. And you know what that means? That means the whole army comes, it's so different than today, the way we militarily think. The whole army comes and surrounds the walled city so that no one in the city can get in or get out. Well, guess where the crops are grown? Outside in the fields. Guess where normally the water comes? Outside. So if you are trapped inside a walled city, it's just a matter of time before the food runs out. 
the water runs out, and when that happens, people get grouchy, and they get desperate, and they get nervous, and, and, and it's terrible. And finally, there's a breakthrough, and the army, which has been waiting and waiting, isn't in a good mood either, and bad things happen. That's how a siege works. So three years, three years, the siege of Samaria, and they took it in verse 10. It says, and at the end of three years, they took it. That's just next door to Jerusalem. News travels. They're looking around. Now it says seven years later, when Hezekiah was 39 years old, that Assyria took all of the fortified cities of Judah. There it is in verse 13. In the 14th year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, there's the guy, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up to them, and Hezekiah, well, he, he, he took all the fortified cities of Judah. He took them all. I mean, that's a very freeze-dried statement. Sennacherib just wiped out the whole area with the exception of Jerusalem. Wow. At 39 years old, things were not looking good for Hezekiah. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. He was a good king, but man, things are looking dicey to say the very least. So what happens? In the next section, chapter, chapter and a half, you've got the Assyrians taunting Jerusalem. You've got messengers coming and saying, Hezekiah, what are you doing? Everybody else is giving it up. Come on. You think you're going to rely on who, Egypt? <laughs> oh, those are a bunch of losers. That would be the wrong thing to do. They can't help you. Tell you what, Hezekiah, I'll give you 2,000 horses and chariots if you've got the people to even man them. <laughs> you got no chance, pal. And then he went on and said things like, you know what, Hezekiah? Your God told me to come here and take Jerusalem. Your God told me. It's the old, I have a word from the Lord. You know, and he was lying. But the people in Jerusalem, of course, they're hearing all this going, uh, uh, uh. I mean, the, the, it was not a good time to vacation in the city of Jerusalem. Not at all. It was not good. And the entire Assyrian army came down, and they were many and surrounded the city of Jerusalem. And there they were, just waiting. How long was it going to last? Nobody knew. But they promised that if we just let them in, they'll be nice to us. No, that had never happened. Well, what do we do? What do we do? Well, here's some principles. Number one, yielding to evil never results in spiritual progress. Yielding to evil, and that's what I'm referring to when I say Sennacherib and the Syrians and their pagan beliefs and their complete disregard for the living God. Now, we could change the word. Yielding to sin never results in spiritual progress. Now, we're not facing the kind of military situation that Hezekiah was, but every day we live as a follower of Jesus, well, Paul said it in Romans 7, man, I don't do what I really want to do, and the thing that I don't want to do, I end up doing, and I've got this tug of war in my life, and, and that's where we live as followers of Jesus, because evil or sin never looks nasty on the cover. Looks great. Looks inviting. Looks 
like something that won't make that big a difference. It won't matter. And now here we are at decision time. Yielding to sin. Yielding to evil. Yielding to whatever is not really God's will never results in spiritual progress. Well, I'm just fine. I, 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 God understands. You know, He made me this way. I have this little... I, and God... Yielding to sin never leads to spiritual progress. And you know, one of the reasons we gather on a regular basis the way the Bible instructs us to do is so that we can expose ourselves to the Word of God and the principles in it and figure out, okay, how do I hook that into my life? How do I plug this in? How do I benefit so that my walk with Jesus is not a duty and it's not something I'm measured by and looking at others to see if they're walking with Jesus? That's not Christian living. We're not sin police. The Christian life is designed to be something exciting and adventurous and compelling because when the power of God is at work in any individual life, it is so cool, it's so awesome to see people begin to make decisions that make an impact for their lives and ultimately for eternity. Yielding to sin never does that. You know, I I had no other choice. We always have a choice. Well, it's only common sense. It's not necessarily common sense if God has said, walk this way, not that way. Well, what could I have done? I didn't really have... We are such artistic rationalizers when it comes to sin in our own lives. Yielding to sin never leads to spiritual progress. Secondly, response to evil creates these choices. Here we go, 2,000 of them a day. Some of them are significant. But response to sin and the opportunity in front of us creates all kind of choices. There's Adam and Eve in the garden, and there's the serpent saying, did God really say that? Maybe you misinterpreted his intent. Let me tell you the real deal. He's not telling you the whole story. When we're presented with something not pleasing to God. It's choice time. And I think God's not messing with us. I think he puts choices in front of every one of us for our own good so that we make the call. He didn't create us as robots that just and live life that way. We have choices every day. You want to walk closer to Jesus or you want to do what feels good right now? Response to sin creates all kinds of critical choices. God puts those in there for a reason, and normally we don't immediately see it as evil, but the decisions we make all have consequences, some of them binding consequences. And every one of us can look back on our life at some point and go, oh, if life had a rewind button, I'd choose the other path. But there's no rewind button. We just move forward which is why I love the fact that God is a God of comebacks because no matter what choices were made back here, he can still take a Moses who was a murderer, hey, and somehow God used him, or a David, adulterer and murderer, and somehow God used him. And I think that's the same for every single one of us, no matter what's back here. God's not finished until he takes us home. So now let's get to the good stuff here. Chapter 19, Sennacherib has been boasting and sending his guys to boast. We're in 2 Kings 19 now. 
And uh, Sennacherib sends a letter, big threat to God. You haven't got a chance. You're going to get wiped out. What are you thinking? Are you an idiot? All that kind of stuff. And it says in verse 14 of chapter 19 of 2 Kings, that's where I am, it says, And Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers, and he read it. And if I was him, I would reread it. And Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord, that's a good place to go, and he spread it out before the Lord. Good move. Not everything that Hezekiah did was necessarily the best move. I mean, he tried to pay off Sennacherib by taking all the gold and silver out of the temple and paying a tribute, thinking that would, that would calm things down. No. So now Sennacherib basically says, I'm coming for you, and it's a desperate situation, and Hezekiah takes the letter that Sennacherib wrote, and I love the way he spreads it out. I mean, I envisioned him either on the floor or maybe there was a table or something. He, he rolls the, le the letter out, and he begins to pray and says, God, were you aware of this? As if God wasn't aware of it. I, I just think maybe we ought to talk about this letter, God. And he starts in, and, and there's three things that I, I want to show you in the prayer that he, he gives here in verses 15, 16, and following. The first thing he did in his prayer, the first thing in a desperate moment was acknowledge the majesty of God. Now, one of the things I like about some of the praise choruses we sing is we, we do that almost every week. We talk about some of the attributes of God, his strength, his glory, his might, his power, his omniscience, and all that. It's like, that's not just filler time when we worship. Acknowledging God's majesty is huge. What does he say here? O Lord of Israel, the one who dwells between the cherubim, those are the, the graven angels on each side of the Ark of the Covenant. It's called the mercy seat where the very presence of the Shekinah glory of God was in the Old Testament to the tabernacle and into the temple. You, God, you are God. You alone of all the kingdoms of the earth, all these fake gods, you've made heaven and earth. These other gods, they're just made of wood. What a waste of time. You alone are God. Let's just, let's just put it out there. That is always a great way to start when we are in desperation. But what's the tendency? What's the tendency when we're like back to the wall? Lord, I need help. Save me, Lord, because I need, I, I've got... Huh, huh. What, whatever the situation is, when the doctor says, oh man, you've got stage four cancer, ah, save me, Lord. Or, oh, you're fired. But I have no income. Lord, I need Normally in desperate situations, I, hey, I'm here. I immediately want to talk about me and my needs and what God I'd like you to do for me. What does Hezekiah do first? He acknowledges the majesty of God. That is such a powerful place to start. Not, I mean, God knows who he is. Hezekiah doesn't have to tell God who he is, but it's a great leveler for Hezekiah in a desperate situation to remember, hey, you made it all. You're the only God there is out there. You're the one who created everything. I'm coming to you. I love that. I love that. The second thing he did is huge, too. He, said, he declared God to be the offended party. Now, this is, this is important. Watch, watch the way the dynamic of this prayer works. Because we tend to think, I want to see God at work and solve my issue. Well, well look what Hezekiah uh, does here uh, in the passage. He says, Lord, 
Incline your ear as if God couldn't hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see and hear the words of Sennacherib, which he sent, now watch this, to reproach the living God. Maybe that's subtle, maybe it's not so subtle, but he doesn't say, Lord, look what Sennacherib is threatening to do. He's threatening to wipe me, King Hezekiah, and all the good people of Jerusalem out. No. There's a big difference here. Look what he says to reproach your name, God. In other words, it's like Hezekiah steps out of the way and makes this issue between God and the Assyrians. Oh, God's going to respond in an almost unbelievable way, but I, I wonder how our prayer might change when we're in a desperate situation of need, when suddenly we're able to see it's really always about God and his glory, not about me and my problem. That's hard for us because my problem is real, and I'm feeling my problem, and I need relief from my problem. But I think there's something here we got to pick up. Regardless of what our issue is in life, it's about God. I'm his child. I'm his representative. But it's about God before it's about me and my issue. And that's what Hezekiah is doing here. Hear these words. Hear these words. He declared God to be the offended party. I just, I love the way he did that. Here's the third thing he does. He prays with a clear and a humble purpose. In desperation, you think he would be begging to be delivered from the situation, but here's what he says, verse 19. Now therefore, O Lord, our God, I pray, save us from his hand. In English, that's save us from his hand. Just five words in the whole prayer. I mean, obviously he wanted to be saved. Not wrong to pray for salvation, but look at the purpose behind the prayer. Now therefore, O Lord, Save us from his hand. Here's the purpose. That all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you are the Lord God, you alone. There's the purpose. Oh, the purpose is not so that I can go on and live a nice, happy life and, and everything would be okay. No, the purpose is the proclamation of the reality and the power of the living God. It's not about us. It's about him. So, Lord, let me just declare again. Your majesty, your God, there's only one. Let me go through here and, and show you God, as if he didn't know, that this guy is reproaching your, this guy's slinging mud on your reputation. This guy wants to wipe us out to show that his gods are bigger than you. God, are you hearing this, God? Of course he's hearing this, and he is delighting in the prayer of Hezekiah. And then he prays purpose. Lord, save us so that the whole world will know there is a God who's a comeback God. It's all about you, God. I wonder how our prayers would change if we just kind of adopted the concepts of the prayer here. Now, now, now let me say something. To me, it's pretty important here. I do not believe in formulaic Christianity. Those of us in the Western world, those of us in the United States, we, we love formulas. We love five steps to a happy life, four steps to a successful marriage, 
17 steps to financial freedom. We, we love a formula that gets us where we want to go, and it's just easy to import that into our concept of God. And if I, if I take what I just gave you, these three steps of Hezekiah's prayer, I just gave you a formula. So, if I first give, number one, the majesty of God, and second of all, if I bring God and show that, oh, it's his reputation on the line, and then thirdly, it's about your glory so that you would get, if I pray this way, you're saying that my issue will go poof. I'm not saying that. God is just not able to be formulized. Can you imagine if that were the case? Can you imagine the control we just got over God if we could just pray these three steps and then God would react like a vending machine? You put the money in, you push the button, ching yes! Wouldn't that be something if we controlled God? We do not control God in any way. He's God! And we're so finite compared to Him. However, He is able. He is able able more than able to accomplish what concerns me today and so the ending to this story is one of the most unusual you, you, there's a song here by Isaiah there's a second song in here you get to the end of chapter 19 and it's the most abrupt ending I want way more details I, I want this in a movie form so I can see the whole thing play out and all we get is just just this short conclusion because again it's about God and His glory. It's not about the gory details of what happened next, and it is, it is gory. I told you, Christianity and Scripture is not about rainbows and unicorns. It's pretty real. It's pretty gritty. And here's what happens. Unbelievable what happens here. And it came to pass on a certain night, this is verse 35 of chapter 19, 2 Kings. It came to pass on a certain night. What night? A certain night. So how long was it from the time that Hezekiah prayed his prayer to, I don't know, a certain night? It came to pass on a certain night that the angel of the Lord, there's an interesting study in and of it, the angel of the Lord went out and killed in the camp of the Assyrians 185,000. That's a lot of soldiers. They were all around Jerusalem and people could get up on the wall and peek and see the camps at night, see the campfires in the daytime, see the smoke rising from the Assyrians who had them surrounded and there was nowhere to go. It was a desperate, the angel of the Lord on a certain night just gets up and kills 185,000. I mean, it just says it right there. What? What was that like? And so I love the way the, <laughs> I love the, way the author says what happened. So, when the people arose early in the morning, there were the corpses, all dead. End of story. That's it, that's it. Talk about an immediate comeback. Desperate situation. God is acknowledged as the only majestic God. God is put in the place of being offended by evil, and the request is salvation so that God and his reputation would be spread throughout the nations. And God responded to that in a most powerful, decisive way. 185,000. <laughs> well, that wasn't a very Christian thing to do. <laughs> Expand your understanding of who God is. That's amazing. That's what you call a comeback 
on a certain night. And there's just a little bit of story after that. It's kind of fun. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, apparently he wasn't one of the 185,000. He departed, he went away, returned home, and remained at Nineveh, the place Jonah didn't want to go. That was the capital city of Assyria. And what happens? His family would, could be labeled dysfunction junction. It came to pass that as he was worshiping in the temple of Nishrosh, his god, small g, that his sons, and their name there, struck him down with the sword. What kind of family is that? So they escaped to the land of Ararat, and another son took his place and reigned. What a beautiful family. Man, I wonder what the holidays were like in that house. But anyway, what happens next in the bigger picture of history is this huge, nasty nation of Assyria is subdued by the Chaldeans or the Babylonians who take their place as the power and, and history goes on and God's in control of it all. He's aware of it all. Yes. He's watching it all. So, last line. Some of God's most powerful work happens when his reputation is on the line. So when you're in desperate situations, and all of us are on some level, maybe desperation is too hard of a word, but take a look at the situation. Don't react. Don't let 80% of your common sense go out the window when all of a sudden there's a crisis. What are we going to do? You know, it, it never helps anything. I mean, it makes it exciting for everyone watching, but it never helps. <laughs> Take, take a look at this crisis you're facing and, and, and ask yourself, is there a way that God can get glory by inserting himself in this situation and helping, helping me, helping us to, to resolve it? Is there a way that God can get glory? The only God. Can I figure out how to pull God into the situation? rather than either fly off the handle or in my own strength try to figure out how to fix it. God is a God of comebacks. Now, I want to be clear, too. I, he doesn't always kill 185,000. There may be situations you wish he would. <laughs> he doesn't always just snap his fingers and everything's resolved. He allows us to walk through some challenges some potholes, some deep valleys. But he's God. And when it comes to his reputation in this world, he can cause comebacks to happen that are almost as unbelievable as 2 Kings 18 and 19, Isaiah 36 and 37. He's that kind of God. And he's still at work today. And Father, we thank you for that. This is the Old Testament, but you're the same God. That was an amazing display of power. You're still the same God. And those of us that have gathered this morning to worship together and to, to look at your word together, you know every heart here. You know what's going on. You know the challenges, maybe even the desperation that some are facing in the room today. Now, Father, may we first and foremost, as Hezekiah did, be able to simply acknowledge your God you're aware of it all. You made it all. This is nothing new to you. This is nothing that can't be overcome. And Father, may we also consider how we might bring more glory to you, not just think of ourselves first. As your children, we love you. And we just can't believe the fact that you love us so much 
that you provided a path for salvation through your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for loving us. And thank you for your word this morning. May it, may it work its way into the cracks of our thoughts and our lives and have its effect in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to thank you for coming this morning on this Lord's Day and tell you, as per usual, here at Desert Breeze, I love this habit that you do. As we close, there'll be some elders uh, that'll just be up here willing to pray with you. That is a great thing. That is a cool thing. The power of prayer, that's hard, it's hard to gauge that, but here are men, leaders in your church that are willing to take time for you. Now, you don't have to be embarrassed to come up here and pray with them. You don't have to give them all the details of whatever you want them to pray for. Just be simple because, you know, God already knows all those details. And have a brother or a sister pray with you as we close. Why don't you stand with me one more time? I'm going to thank the Lord and dismiss you. Father, this is your word. We're your people. It's been a privilege to be together in this place today. May we live for you this week, first and foremost. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for coming. See you next week.